Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and as part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living series, our guest today is historian John Furling. Throughout his long career, historian John Furling has specialized in the American Revolution, and that's what he's going to be talking to us about today. As a matter of fact, his new book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War from 1778 to 1781, is fantastic, and that'll be the focus. He has taught numerous courses on the American Revolution, and John Furling has also taught courses on America's founders, the U.S. military history, and he's the author of 13 more books, all but two of which have dealt with the American Revolution and its leaders. Many times we think of the key moments of the American Revolution, we perhaps overlook the latter half of the war. Today, John Furling is here to change that, focusing on the later Southern campaigns in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, John Furling's narrative history in his new book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War from 1778 to 1781, considers how rival commanders George Washington and Sir Henry Clinton faced challenges and setbacks at a time when American independence was far from certain. Yet another example of early American history from one of the best practitioners in the nation about the Southern strategy, General George Washington's great political acumen, but equally stifling risk aversion, and why America really did win the Revolutionary War. So why did America win the war? Morale sagged as the war continued unabated, but it never vanished, and the great majority of men and women on the home front continued to make incredible sacrifices year after year. No Americans were more responsible for winning independence than the thousands of grim-faced soldiers, men who slogged down lonely roads under a blazing sun or while lashed by rain or a raw wind. These were soldiers who slept in the open without tents or in barracks so primitive that in winter the cold seemed to gnaw at the marrow of their bones, men who were often deprived of proper sustenance and adequate clothing and shoes, who not infrequently were unpaid, and who risked their all under enemy fire on bleak and forbidding battlefields. Alongside the sacrifices of the Continentals, untried militiamen, who all too often were inadequately prepared for combat, answered the call for duty and made substantive contributions in an abundance of clashes, as did resolute and severe partisan warriors. But these men were not solely responsible for winning independence. French assistance uh, to, to America was crucial. French aid flowed across the Atlantic prior to the Treaty of Alliance and increased thereafter. To be sure, an America devoid of French aid could never have imagined the siege at Yorktown. The journey from Saratoga to Yorktown was long, tortuous, and bloody, and it might have ended quite differently. When independence was declared, William Ellery, a congressman from Rhode Island, said that it was one thing to declare independence, but another to win it. Five years after declaring independence, it was finally won at Yorktown, a triumph that promised, as Washington said in his farewell to the Army, a glorious period filled with enlarged prospects of happiness 
that almost exceeds the power of description. That, of course, is our guest today, author and historian John Furling, reading from his new book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781. And now please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associate John Furling. John Furling, welcome to the program. And I'll say this, welcome back to the program, too. Okay, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I always enjoy talking to you. Our audience loves hearing from you. Thank you very much for the reading that you've provided from your excellent book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781. The book is getting great reviews, excellent reviews, John Furling. And I wanted to read this because I thought this was so impressive from Publishers Weekly. It says, it's a quote from Publishers Weekly. It says, Historian Furling, John Furling, examines in this deeply researched and well-argued account how the Revolutionary War shifted from a conflict that many on both sides had thought would be short and not especially bloody to a gigantic world war that dragged on for eight years. We're going to cover the period of the book, 1778 to 1781. Those are termed some of the decisive years of the war. They're also called, their so-called Southern strategy is discussed in, in the book. And I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about what the Southern strategy of that period really was and, and how did that evolve? Sure. Uh, well, the Southern strategy really doesn't come into existence until about the third year of the war. And it came about because Britain had failed to crush the uh, insurgency uh, between Lexington and Concord in April of 1775 and Saratoga in 1777. Uh, during that period, it sought to gain control, uh, re-control of its northern colonies and defeat the Continental Army, and it had largely struck out on, on all of its objectives. And after Saratoga, which in, in which a, a, a large British army under General John Burgoyne surrendered uh, at the end of his invasion of, of New York in the fall of 1777, um the, the the there were many people in in Great Britain who wanted to drop out of the war at that point who saw it as a fool's errand or or that they knew that France was going to come into the war and they wanted to get out before the French came in and they had to fight another war against the the French and there was another group in in England that wanted to just forget the war in the mainland colonies and focus on defending the British islands in the Caribbean. And then there was a third group that wanted to continue the war. And they, they, they knew they had to come up with a different strategy since the, the, the previous strategy had failed. And the group that wanted to continue the war, most importantly, included the king, George III, but also the the American secretary or secretary of state for America, Lord George Germain. And what they what Germain came up with was what came to be known as the Southern strategy. Germain felt, and he was correct, there have been a number of, of historical studies um, over the last couple of generations that have demonstrated that he was right about this, 
that Germaine believed that a larger percentage of the population in the South remained loyal to Great Britain than was the case up north. And Germaine also knew that with France coming into the war and and the war and Britain would now have to to do, to fight not only in America but in the um, in the Caribbean and and to defend their homelands against a possible French invasion, that um, the army in America would be smaller. And so he needed somebody else to soldier in the army, and um, he he thought that many of these loyalists in the South would be willing to bear arms for for their king. And he was largely right in in that re- respect. Uh, the British began to actively recruit uh, loyalists. Uh, some were Southerners. A great many came from. Uh, New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and uh, they uh, these men went into what were called provincial regiments, uh, usually commanded by a British army, but otherwise all of the all of the other officers and men in the regiment were were American loyalists, and uh, so the the idea was that uh, the the British would now go into the southern colonies, and they would try to regain control of Georgia and South Carolina, and if at all possible, North Carolina as well. And uh, the, the strategy would unfold with the British Army moving into an area and flushing out the the rebels and then behind them would come a loyalist militia which would occupy that area and pacify it over a few weeks or months time and in the end if if the southern strategy worked uh the british would come away with something from this war they they might not prevent american independence but if you think about it the british already controlled florida they still controlled the trans-appalachian west they they still held canada and if they added uh georgia south carolina and north carolina to that and held on to their sugar islands in the caribbean they would have a large and viable uh, empire still in North America. So that's that's the Southern strategy, and um, that that's what Great Britain will begin to pursue beginning in 1778. And so they the British had a, a large geographic advantage, and they had the loyalists uh, alongside them as part of the Southern strategy and kind of recruitment and. To maybe add to this geographic advantage, did they did the British consider freeing slaves to fight alongside them, or or were there other options to you know add to kind of the troop strength and 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 as I got the impression as I read the book that the loyalists weren't even entirely supported kind of after the battles. Yeah, the well early in the war, in the first year of the war, the the royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore did issue a proclamation in which he announced that he would provide freedom to the slaves owned by rebels who fled behind British lines. And quite a few did uh, that. 
But the reaction among the revolutionaries was, particularly among the Southern revolutionaries, was that this had had done more to uh, solidify support for the revolution than than uh, anything that had been done to, to that point. So, uh, once the Southern strategy uh, uh, was began to be was designed and began to be implemented, London really said nothing about liberating the slaves. It was just I think they looked at it as maybe just too dicey to to approach. But a couple of years later, Sir Henry Clinton, who's the commander-in-chief of the British Army in America, starting in in May of 1778, uh, issued what became known as the Phillipsburg Proclamation. And uh, in that proclamation, Clinton announced pretty much the same thing that Lord Dunmore had, had announced, and that was that uh, slaves that were owned by rebels, only slaves owned by rebels, would be liberated if they fled behind British lines. And he he envisaged uh, those slaves uh, performing uh, many things. Some of them might uh, be become farmers who would grow things for the British uh, army. Uh, to consume some of them might be scouts since they lived in the area and 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 guides they they knew the the area well and some of them might actually soldier and some did uh soldier he uh, Clinton formed a couple of companies of pioneers as they were called and the pioneers accompanied the regular army as as they marched and and what and their job was to uh, cut down trees to clear areas to make roads because the army and all the wagons that accompanied the army carrying the provisions had to had, had to get through clearings uh to 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 keep moving uh and clinton later on said that he that he hoped he didn't have the authority to mandate this but that he hoped if britain succeeded in in regaining and holding on to these uh southern colonies uh that uh the slaves who had fled behind uh british lines and had been given their freedom would also be given land and uh that that of course didn't materialize because Britain didn't didn't win the didn't win the war. But um, so uh, so so there are a great many slaves that do free. I'm not. No one knows exactly how many, but uh, what, what is known is that uh, at, in the in the last year of the war, as things were winding down, this is around 1782 and 83 after Yorktown. Uh, many of the loyalists uh, left and sailed principally from uh, Savannah and Charleston, and um, most of them went to the West Indies. And uh, the 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 freedmen, the slaves who had had escaped behind uh, British lines, also got passage out of America. And it's known that thousands 
left, though it's not known precisely how many thousands, there are estimates that that perhaps as many as 20,000 uh, may have departed. It's fascinating. The, the book, again, is wonderful. It's titled Winning Independence. Our guest is John Furling. John Furling, you mentioned several names, Henry Clinton, uh, Lord uh, George Germain. The pictures that you've added to the book are, are absolutely wonderful and, and so helpful in identifying these various in, individuals. I, I didn't know a lot about Henry Clinton. And it was interesting in my reading that I found he said at, at the beginning of his command, he kind of began some of that on a pessimistic note. He said, my fate is hard. Did Germain set up Clinton to fail? No, no, I, I don't think so. I uh, No, not at all. As a matter of fact, he certainly wanted him to, to succeed. But what had happened is Clinton gets uh, the communique from from Germain. Uh, Germain wrote it in March, but because of the time lag, Clinton didn't receive the, the communique until uh, May of 1778. And in that communique, Germain tells Clinton that he's going to replace General William Howe, who had resigned as the commander-in-chief of the British Army, in North America, but then he also tells Clinton that Clinton has to uh, give up eight thousand of his of his men, uh, and they're going to be sent primarily to the Caribbean to meet the threat that was posed by going to be posed by the French, who would be entering the war. So when Clinton said, "My fate is hard." Uh, what he was referring to is that on the one hand, uh, the British had lost about 7,000 men that had surrendered at Saratoga the previous October. Now he has to relinquish 8,000 men. So uh, he wrote to a friend in London as soon as he finds that he's been named commander-in-chief, and he says, my fate is hard. Uh, because I, I'm going to have an army that's about one-third smaller than the army that had been in America in 1776 and 1777. That army couldn't win the war against the Americans alone, and now with one-third fewer men, he has to try to win the war against both the Americans and the French. So the, the deck is really stacked against Clinton, he, he, he feared, and that, that he goes on to tell his friend that he thinks that Britain's defeat in the war is, is probably inevitable, and that he also feared that he would be ultimately blamed for the British failure in this war. And, and he obviously turned out to be prescient, uh, on on this, the British did lose the war, and uh, Clinton was scapegoated by many people in England once they learned of of Cornwallis's surrender at at Yorktown in late in 1781, and that many historians have jumped on that bandwagon as well and have depicted Clinton as uh, being overly cautious and and that uh his his uh, uh passivity uh as, as as one historian called it was uh to to a considerable degree responsible for the british failure in this war so one of the things that i tried to do in the book was uh reassess clinton 
as a as a general and and my argument is that that Clinton may not have been a great general but that he was a good general and that um he was he was not responsible for Britain's failure uh in uh, to in, in this war and um that in fact he came much closer to to actually um making the southern strategy succeed than he believed was possible when he when he took command in fact when when the 1781 begins that's the last year of the war leading down to to Yorktown Clinton was really more optimistic of British success than was Washington Washington about that time wrote a, a letter to the chief executive in Pennsylvania and Washington says I have almost ceased to hope that independence can be uh, obtained and Clinton felt that if the if the allies could be prevented from scoring a decisive victory in 1781 and he thought they could be prevented uh from scoring that victory that what would happen was uh that France was ready to drop out of the war. British intelligence was telling him that, and I think it was correct. John Adams, an American diplomat in Europe, was telling Congress the same the same thing. The French had been in the war for three years. They hadn't accomplished anything they wanted out, and their, the, the way that they could get out and save face in doing so was to agree to uh, a peace conference. And uh, that peace conference that would then decide if there was a, to be a, an independent United States and what what uh, states in America would remain colonies of Britain and whatever. And so Clinton was more optimistic than uh, than Washington at that point. And Clinton, you, you write, was was astute in, in the sense that he he actually disapproved, he, he disapproved of. Uh, Cornwallis's move into Virginia that led to the disaster at Yorktown. What what else can you can you tell us a little about the relationship between Clinton and Cornwallis? Sure, and let me let me before I say something about their relationship, let me just say that that Clinton sort of re, rethought British strategy as as he moved towards 1781 and uh Clinton was regarded by many as the best strategic planner uh, among all of the off British officers in America. And the strategy that Clinton came up with for 1781 was that, that he felt that the rebels in the Deep South uh, existed solely by getting provisions in from the outside. The provisions flowed down from came came from abroad, entered New England ports, and then flowed on down uh, through Philadelphia, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and into the Carolinas and Georgia. So Clinton came up with a twofold strategy. He he first of all put an army of about six thousand men in Virginia. And that army was to destroy rebel supply depots and then interdict the flow of supplies. So they would just starve the 
the rebels in the deep south into into submission. And the second part of his strategy was that Cornwallis was to remain in South Carolina. And Cornwallis, now helped by uh, the fact that the rebels were devoid of, of supplies, would be able to crush the uh, the rebellion there, and of course, when Cornwallis came to Virginia, that that uh, uh, deep sixed uh, Clinton strategy. But uh, but to to your question about their relationship, they had an off and on relationship. I guess is the best way to put it. They uh, Cornwallis was about eight years younger than Clinton, but they were both professional British soldiers. And they had both served in a, in the previous war, which is called the Seven Years' War in the, in the 1750s and 60s in Germany. And so they knew one another there. They had a very good relationship. Uh, and then they're reunited in, in the war in America. Clinton is sent here in 75, 1775, and Cornwallis is sent here in 1776. And they had a very good relationship initially. But um, once Clinton and Cornwallis were having a conversation, private conversation, and in that conversation, Clinton criticized the commander of the British Army at that time, General William Howe. And Cornwallis went to Howe and tattled on Clinton. He told, told Howe what Clinton had said. And so Clinton broke off his relationship with with Cornwallis. He was so angry. But then, over the next two or three years, they didn't see one another again. They were in different theaters in America, and Cornwallis went back to England for a time. And um, uh, time sort of healed the wounds, and, and mutual friends brought them together again. And so Cornwallis came back to America in 1779, and again, they had a very good relationship. And uh, Cornwallis was the second in command to Clinton when Clinton uh, commanded a, a huge expedition that sailed for South Carolina in early in in 1780, and that that led to the capture of Charleston and the capture of an American army uh, in Charleston. But when Cornwallis came back over to America, he knew that Clinton, who was frustrated with London's intrusiveness on his command, had asked to be relieved of his command. And if that went through, and everybody expected that it would go through, then Cornwallis would succeed him, and he would become the commander. And during this campaign for Charleston, uh, they hear from Lord Germain, and Germain says that he and the king have refused to honor Clinton's request that he be re relieved of command. And Cornwallis then becomes so petulant in in uh, once he learns that that he tells Clinton, "I don't want you to consult me anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with this." And and Clinton uh, obviously thought that Cornwallis was acting in an unprofessional manner. And from that point on. Their relationship is is soured, and it it remains soured from that point on.
We are with author John Furling. John Furling is a historian, has written the new book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781. Among the other characters that you, you talk about uh, is uh, Commander Rochambeau and, and his role, especially in Virginia. There was all of this infighting and uh, these rivalries going on, particularly between General Washington who opposed uh, Rochambeau's plan to march down into Virginia, but but gave in. And you, you say that, that George Washington had great political acumen, but he was risk-averse. I suppose this is an example of that, but maybe maybe tell us a little bit about why it was that Washington was risk averse, yet he was still able to be victorious in in this bat in these battles in this war. Sure. Well, let me mention first that uh, Rochambeau, who commanded the French army that came to America in July of 1780, he and Washington met in Weathersfield, Connecticut, in May of 1781 to plan the campaign for for that year. And Rochambeau opens the conference by essentially saying to Washington, what do you want to do uh, this year? And Washington says, I I want to uh, attack New York, a combined French-American campaign to take retake New York. Washington was obsessed with with retaking uh, New York. Uh, it, it was a crucial prize, and if they if they were able to take it, there's no question the war would be over. But he had also lost New York in 1776, so there may have been a, a psychological dimension to, to Washington's uh, obsession. But Rochambeau, in effect, says, look, I, I don't think we can take New York. I mean, I'm making this up. He doesn't say this categorically, but... He, he in, in essence, says the British have had five, they've occupied New York for five years. They've had five years to prepare their defenses. Uh, it, it's going to be a long campaign. Um, uh, we, we'd have to, uh, more than half of our troops would have to be militiamen. They only serve three months at a time. And so I don't think it's feasible. But there's a British army down in Virginia, and I think it's a better target. And so, uh, but Washington insisted on New York, and Rochambeau said okay uh, to that. But as soon as as they left Weathersfield, Rochambeau wrote to Admiral de Grasse, who is commanding a French task force, that um, uh, that Rochambeau and Washington knew would be coming to America in the late summer, and he told. Uh, Admiral de Grasse, not to come to New York, but to come to uh, the Chesapeake. And eventually, Washington held out for New York for a, for a long time, but uh, eventually he came around to, to think, too, that maybe Virginia was the, was the better choice and, and that, that perhaps Rochambeau uh, was, was right. I, Washington was... As, as as you mentioned, I, I say in the book that Washington was was risk averse after after Saratoga. He he certainly early in the war took risks. The greatest being his his sensational victories at Trenton and Princeton right after Christmas of 1776. But but once he knew that France was coming into the war. 
Washington said that he would have to to be more cautious. And um, uh, he didn't spell it out, but I think what he's really saying is that from this point forward, I do not want to act unless the French uh, agree to the action that, that I want to take and uh, that I can act in concert with the with the French. So, um, and he just couldn't get the French, I mean, there wasn't a French army here in, in 1778 or 79. It didn't come until the late summer of 1780. And then only a portion of the army came and Rochambeau said, I, I can't do anything till the full army gets here. So it's not until 1781 that the French feel that they have the capability to to take the field alongside the 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 continental army so until that point washington really is risk averse but what once he knows that the french will will go with him then then he's ready to to go into to action and it was just that that he he wasn't afraid of taking a risk in the 1781 the difference between washington and rochambeau was that Washington uh, was obsessed with New York, and Rochambeau thought that Virginia was a better target. And I think Rochambeau, I tried to argue in the book that Rochambeau was right, and Yorktown obviously proved it. Our guest has been John Furling, author of the new book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781. John Furling is an excellent author and historian, really some of the the best uh, at writing about this particular period of American history. I I just have one final question for you, John Furling. You write that, but for these blunders, and we've talked about that, we've talked a little bit about the rivalries and some of the infighting that that went on, on on both sides, you write that, but for these blunders, Britain would have defeated the rebels who made their own blunders, but not enough to lose. Yeah, that... Is that the assess... Yeah, tell us, is that a good conclusion? Sure. Uh, I Well, what what I argue in the book is that I that Clinton, I think, came, as I said earlier, much closer than he thought he would be able to 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 bringing the southern strategy to a successful conclusion and in the end he he was foiled by cornwallis who who uh, undercut his strategy by taking his army to uh, virginia but also by lord germain uh because clinton's plan all along while he had put an army of 6,000 men in Virginia in March, he had planned to withdraw all but 2,000 of those men from Virginia and bring them to New York, where he where he was absolutely certain the Allies were going to, to strike, and where Washington, as, as I've said, did want to uh, to strike. And Clinton was actually in the process of withdrawing uh, troops from Virginia when he heard from uh, Lord Germain in in July of 1781, and Germain said that he and the king did not want one single British soldier uh, removed uh, from Virginia. And so the result was, instead of having just a small army of 2,000 men that the Allies might might not have felt was big enough to to give them the decisive victory they needed to win this war, that um, 
uh, instead of that small army being there, there was an army now of 7,500 men once Cornwallis came into Virginia. And as I've said, Rochambeau saw that as a, a tempting target, and eventually Washington agreed that it, it was uh, a target that they should go after. John Furling, author of the excellent new book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War. Thank you so much for your time today, for going through this with us. The book is just excellent. The research is uh, always at the uh, the very height of uh, historical accounting. And John Furling, you're, you're just the best. We, we just are so grateful for all you do and for your time with us today. And as you uh, explore this subject further, please... Come back and, and join us again and talk about this, because I, I love talking to you about it. Well, I'd love to, and I, I certainly thank you for uh, having me today. My thanks to author and historian John Furling for his generous time and his new book, Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781, which is wonderful. I just highly recommend it. It's on sale everywhere, so please go check it out. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show, and my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Remember, be well, stay safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.